0: Doings of Doyle is sponsored by Belanger Books, home of the best Sherlock Holmes anthologies featuring today's top Sherlockian authors. Belanger Books is the only authorised publisher of Solar Ponds Mysteries, continuing the Sherlock Holmes legacy into the 21st century. Visit them today at belangerbooks.com. Welcome to Doings of Doyle, a podcast dedicated to the works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Professor Challenger, Brigadier Gerard, and, of course, Sherlock Holmes. I'm Mark Jones.
1: And I'm Paul Chapman. And together we'll be exploring Doyle's eclectic bibliography to understand more about the great man's life and work. We'll be discussing his fiction and non-fiction, the well-known and the obscure.
0: And stopping by Baker Street along the way. You can find out more at doingsofdoyle.com or follow us at doingsofdoyle on Twitter. Hello and welcome to episode 23. We're off to a German university town for a comic tale that draws on Conan Doyle's school days and his early encounters with spiritualism. It's the Great Kineplatz Experiment from 1885. And here's Paul with a summary.
1: Alexis von Baumgarten is a respected professor of chemistry, anatomy, and physiology at the University of Kineplatz. But of late, he has been developing some odd ideas and following strange interests, such as spiritualism and mesmerism. To silence his critics, von Baumgarten has arranged a great experiment, whereby, with the assistance of one of his students, Fritz von Hartmann, he will publicly and irrefutably demonstrate the ability of the human spirit to leave its host body temporarily and then tell of its experiences on the astral plane. However, although in some respects the experiment is a great success, there is an unanticipated complication and the learned professor and light-hearted student unexpectedly see the world through another's eyes.
0: <laughs> now, the story was one of uh, many written by Conan Doyle when he was a struggling general practitioner in Southsea. And we can't be entirely sure when it was written, but we think it was most likely in 1884. Um, we know Keinplatz was already doing the rounds of the publishers when Conan Doyle was finishing off uh, The Fate of the Evangeline, which is a short story, including the famous maxim, when you eliminate the impossible uh, a few years before it was used in the in the Sherlock Holmes stories and uh, we know evangeline was submitted to blackwood's magazine in december 1884 and indeed rejected 2 weeks later so Kindplatz plats must be written before then the story seems to have had a number of different titles. Uh, it, according to Andrew Lysett, it was originally known as either Professor Baumgarten or Alexis von Baumgarten's Experiment. And after the story was rejected by Cornhill magazine, Conan Doyle decided to retitle the story The Great Kineplatz Experiment. And we'll get on to why Conan Doyle wrote the story in 1884 and the choice of title in a bit. Uh, Eventually, Conan Doyle sent the story to Belgravia magazine, who accepted it, and it was first published in uh, their edition for July 1885 and in the New York Times in the same month. And um, Two years after that, in 1887, it appeared in book form in a rather strange anthology called Dreamland and Ghostland, which collected short stories by a number of authors from a very wide range of periodicals, uh, including Belgravia. Uh, Kindplatz appeared in Volume 3. And it's notable because it was among the six short stories in these volumes, which are, in fact, the first appearance of Conan Doyle's short stories in book form in England. And while Conan Doyle wasn't credited on the cover of that anthology, he was singled out in the preface as Mr. A. Conan Doyle, the grandson of H.B., and nephew of the late Richard Doyle, uh, and probably was actually referred to as Mr. because the stories were written before he received his doctorate in 1885. The Great Keimplatz Experiment then first appeared in the UK under Conan Doyle's own name in The Captain of the Polestar and Other Tales in 1890. And its first appearance in book form in the US uh, was in the 1925 volume The Great Keimplatz Experiment and Other Tales of Twilight and the Unseen. Quite a mouthful. (laughs) And there was a book that was written in 1882 that um, you've been looking at, Paul, and that very much looks like it could be a, a direct inspiration for The Great Keimplatz Experiment.
1: Yeah, it's it's a pretty well-known book. It, it, even today, it it still has its admirers and fans. Um, and it, it's it, it came out in 1882, uh, and it's called Vice Versa or A Lesson to Fathers. Mm. Uh, and the author was was F. Anstey. Um, and and Vice Versa, it's it's basically it's a body swap story uh, about father and a son. Um, the, the the father is a businessman, Paul Bultitude. Uh, and his son Dick, who's moaning about going back to school, and his mm. father, essentially, I wish I could go back to school, etc. And they have an Indian wish stone nearby. So, <laughs> guess what happens? It, it essentially turns out that the, the Paul and Dick swap bodies and and, and lives. Mm. Um, and so, um, Paul Paul Bultitude, as 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 Dick, gets to go go uh, go to Creighton House School, run by the cane wielding Doctor Grimstone um and and uh, dick gets to run his own his, his father's business um so was all these kind of comedies of errors that kind mm. of thing um and all, all ends well in the in the end uh, yeah the, the usual <laughs> way with but it was a you know, huge hugely popular book um it was turned into a play in 1883 mm. um which shows the, the the popularity uh at the time f anstey was actually thomas anstey guthrie uh who's Pen name was going to be Anstey, but it became F. Anstey by a typesetter's error.
0: No, <laughs> um, and he, he
1: stuck. He stuck with it. He, his his career in in many ways mirrors Conan Doyle's in a strange mm. way because he was a, a a trainee lawyer. I think he just qualified, but decided he wanted a career in literature rather than in in one of the professions. And he he actually uh, submitted. Uh, vice versa. Uh, the, well, the third publisher he tried was Smith, Elder and Co., and their reader was James Payne, uh, who was to be very important in Conan Doyle's career as well. And and Payne was very impressed with with, with this book, um, and um, he was also the editor of the um, of the Cornhill Magazine, uh, as well as being yeah. Smith Elder's chief reader and he 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 saw something in vice versa and offered anstey um twenty five pounds for the copyright uh, at home and abroad uh, and an additional twenty five pounds in case it was a second edition mm. so again we were kind of in similar territory for 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 doyle with with study in scarlet where he was you know given twenty five pounds for the copyright mm. um of study in scarlet uh, anstey like doyle like accepted. These terms, and and he actually did um, did well out of it in the end because the book was such a runaway success. It, it founded it his his literary career. Mm. Um, it, it's also interesting to think that that Anstey was offered twenty five pounds plus the additional twenty five pounds for, for all the rights, essentially, for vice versa. At around the same time, Conan Doyle had submitted J. Habakkuk Jefferson's statement to the Cornhill, mm. and he got twenty nine guineas for a short story. Wow. So, you know, that really puts into context how uh, how the, the Cornhill had actually valued J. Habakkuk Jeffson's and thought, you know, it's such a good story. Mm. But because Doyle uh, had, had had his story accepted by the Cornhill, he was invited along to the end-of-year dinner for the Cornhill, uh, which was, was held at the Ship Tavern in Greenwich. Um, and he actually met Anstey there. And uh, in Memories and Adventures, he says, I sat next to Anstey that night, who had just made a most deserved hit with his Vice Versa, so that I came back walking on air. Not quite right, because we have, we have mm. um, a contemporary letter to his mother uh, where he's talking about this, this dinner. And he says to her, his immediate neighbours were actually the artists Harry Furness and William Hazeman Overend. But in the same letter, he also notes a palsy young man with spectacles was the man who had just made a great hit with a novel called Vice Versa. So he'd <laughs> taken notice of, of Anstey. Uh, and then in a later letter, the same month, um, again to his mother, uh, he says that Anstey's tale, and presumably here he's talking about Vice Versa, begins to flag. Mm. So he's obviously thinking, oh, this is a good idea, but it's maybe not right for novel length. Yeah. Um, and then, by the way, I last left him very drunk underneath the Adelphi arches. I think he will remember me. <laughs> so he's obviously got quite pally with uh, with Anstey that, that, that evening. But it's very suggestive that he says about Anstey's novel begins to flag. Yeah. Um, to me, this this I, this may be the seeds of the great Kindplatz experiment. And Doyle thinking I could do this. I could do a version of this, and I can do it in a short story version where it won't flag. Um, Because it's, you know, it's gone through at a faster rate and, and, you know, the jokes don't run thin. Mm. He actually submitted the great Kahnplatz experiment to the Cornhill magazine, but Payne, James Payne rejected it. Yeah. Possibly James famous was thinking this is too long. Like, this is the same versa. thing. Yeah. We, we printed the novel. We can't print the story. Um, but um, as as you said earlier, Mark, it then got published in the uh, the Belgravia. Yeah, uh, and it's interesting to see like the the later friendship developing between Conan Doyle and and, and Anstey Guthrie um anstey did indeed remember acd and 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 they did become friends and later on anstey was writing the the brass bottle which was another great success of his mm. a, a kind of arabian nights fantasy type thing um he was writing that in 1889 and he actually submitted that to greenhouse smith at the strand magazine uh and greenhouse smith accepted it but anstey actually turned to acd um to ask him about terms uh-huh. Um, for the say, so, uh, has, has Greenhouse Smith given me good terms mm. and so on? Anstey says in his autobiography, a long retrospect. Uh, I contacted my friend Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, with whom I was spending a weekend and who I knew was the best and kindest of advisers. Mm. He suggested ten guineas per thousand words, and I had no difficulty in obtaining a contract on those terms from Mister. Greenhouse Smith. So you can see, it's it's interesting. That shows you two things. It does show you the the, you know, the friendship that had developed between uh, Conan Doyle and Anstey Guthrie, and it also shows Conan Doyle's business head in action. And yeah, it's, a, it's a, an interesting little anecdote.
0: Yeah, it's great that, isn't it? Because it was, and I think also it shows Conan Doyle's commitment to writing as a profession. He has that. He takes that business attitude to his writing, and he's now able to pass on that knowledge to his um his peers
1: yeah and, and it's interesting yeah, with with Anstey himself being a full- time professional writer that he actually still whether it's because Conan Doyle was so embedded in the strand mm. that that's why he turned to 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 Doyle about business terms, but nevertheless Anstey is a professional writer himself, so it does show that Doyle probably had a name for having a good business head certainly in in, in terms of, of selling literature if if not some of his other business enterprises but but definitely in terms of selling literature
0: yes absolutely um,
1: there's another interesting side to um to their friendship as well they they're involved in one literary collaboration which is this, this kind of oddity uh which is a novel called the fate of fenella which mm-hmm. was so uh, there the, seems to be in a fashion for these in the uh, the late 19th century of, of, of novels which were written by a team of authors, mm. uh, and each one would write a chapter, and they'd just carry on where the other one left off. Um, so, the fate of Nellie was was actually first published in the Gentlewoman magazine, uh, and then published in book form in eighteen ninety two. Uh, but Conan Doyle contributed a chapter, as did as did Anstey, um, and there was another chapter contributed by um, by a, a mutual friend of theirs as well, called uh, Bram Stoker, who mm. five years later would uh, write a other
0: successful book called Dracula. Rather more successful than the fate of Fenella.
1: Yes, deservedly so.
0: <laughs> and Anstey's Vice Versa is um, a sort of culmination of a, f- a few people who have experimented with this idea of the sort of body swap or the reversed identities. I mean, the, the, probably the most famous one, one of the earliest ones is um, Transformation, which is a short story by Mary Shelley and was first published in 1831 for the keepsake. And that features a man who trades bodies with a a strange dwarf who (laughs) promises to return his body and then doesn't. And the man kills himself uh, and then miraculously finds himself reinstated in in his own body. Um, And then there's um, Gautier in the 1850s wrote a story called Avatar, uh, which is a a short story based on the same thing. And a bit like Antony's Vice Versa, actually, it has the magic... They, the, the body swap is achieved using magic acquired in India, which is a, an interesting little connection. Mm-hmm. And then on a completely different scale, you get um, you get this more comic version of the reversed identity story with W.S. Gilbert of Gilbert and Sullivan fame. And in 1870, he collaborated with uh, um, a musician called Frederick Clay. Um, he'd just met Sullivan at the time, but they, they weren't actually collaborating at this point. Uh, and they produced a two-act comic opera called The Gentleman in Black, um, and that has a sort of body swap element to it as well. And in fact, um, Gilbert and Clay came back to the same idea two years later in a now-lost um, comic opera called Happy Arcadia, where the entire last act involves several characters <laughs> body swapping. Um, so those are a few stories that that follow in the same trend as Anstein, but there, there are some others as well.
1: Yeah, well, one of the, the stories, it's not a, a direct body swap story, but I, I think may possibly also have, have, have played a role in, in influencing the Great Keungplatz experiment. Uh, and it's, it's noteworthy that, that um, you mentioned earlier that, that this was originally, uh, one of the original titles was possibly Alexis von Baumgarten's experiment. Mm is um a story which i'm sure doyle would have read uh, called dr heidegger's experiment yeah. um by nathaniel hawthorne we know that doyle read hawthorne he found him difficult to yeah. really get on with his work but um, he was familiar with it uh, and this is a story where, where dr dr heidegger has discovered the fountain of youth and gets four old friends together to drink from this and they they go back to to being youthful and and you know Behave like fools, uh, so there's there's an element that's very like the, grime, you know, the great complex experiment, uh, and of course you get the name Doctor Heidegger, and you think, what's the name of the uh, the, the German master in the priory school, it's <laughs> Heidegger? So perhaps that's where where that came Good from. Good point. Um, and and another story, which is is again a bit more. Uh, perhaps serious in its approach is is uh, *Ligeia* by Edgar Allan Poe, mm. um, where you know wh- where a dead wife uh, comes back to inhabit the body of a later wife, um, yeah. and it, it is this this kind of uh, possession and and taking over another's body. Um, but you know, obviously, far darker than *Kind But that certainly is another story that Doyle would would have been familiar
0: with. And this is where the sort of body swap. Um, elements tie in a bit with the spiritualist interpretations and other ideas, this idea of the soul moving mm-hmm. between different um bodies uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, as such and we covered that previously in connection to Poe in the Captain of the Pole star in episode three, where we talked about metzengerstein, which is the the story in which there 's a the soul uh, existing separate to the body and being able to inhabit other casings as it were mm-hmm. is is something that comes out a few times with with Poe and you get that also in Morella and in um the oval portrait as well to some extent. Mm. Mm. And talking of Edgar Allan Poe, another clear influence on this story is Doyle's um, very early experimentation with an, an interest in the supernatural and um, spiritualism and the occult, um, which are all buzzing around in his head in, in the early 1880s. And there's even an indication of this in the story directly, where we learn that Professor Baumgarten has been experimenting in these sort of areas. And it it sounds quite sort of semi-vaguely autobiographical of of Conan Doyle. Uh, It said, uh, at first, when as a young man, he began to dip into the secrets of mesmerism, his mind seemed to be wandering in a strange land where all was chaos and darkness, save that here and there some great unexplainable and disconnected fact loomed out in front of him. And Conan Doyle would later say in Memories and Ventures that this was a a period of time of of skepticism on his part, and that his psychic studies only began after his first marriage, which was in August 1885. But the evidence doesn't really substantiate that. He had an interest even then that, uh, that sort of predates that by at least a couple of years.
1: Yeah, yeah. Doyle had arrived in in Portsmouth in 1882. Um, Nobody knew him there. It was was starting life anew, as it were. Um, And so he had to establish himself both in a professional capacity as a doctor. Uh, but also in in his social life, uh, and one of the things he did um, regarding the latter uh, was was joining the uh, the Portsmouth Literary and Scientific Society, mm. uh, which was w- one of these um, social and intellectual groups where where. The guest lecturers would come in, topics would be discussed, uh, all, all that sort of thing. Um, and, and Doyle was actually invited to lecture to them in December 1883 on, on his polar experiences. Um, but one of the other things within this group, he, he met a retired... Uh, Indian Army General Alfred Drayson who was um, he was an uh, astronomer as well as a retired soldier Mm. but he was also very interested in in the twilight world of the occult (laughs) Um, and uh, Doyle Got got very close to Drayson, um, and through him, he he had his first experiences really in spiritualism. Um, it was introduced to various people uh, from from that world. Um, so th- this this is all happening before eighteen eighty five, mm. um, and and so you, you've got these ideas uh, going into the Great Kindplatz experiment, as well as all the you know, the literary influences from from Anstey and so on, um, and and it's also the the the, the idea of, of, of what you just quoted, mark from from bamgarten, of this how does science and the occult how do they work together? Are they yeah. compatible and 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 it's the young man Doyle trying to work out having essentially lost his Catholic faith, what do I believe in? Who am I? Um but he's also a very rational doctor, and mm. it, it's kind of he's got this interest and Burgeoning belief in in certain occult systems. Uh, how do you put them together? And and that comes out very very much in the in the story.
0: Yeah, there's a there's a direct quote, in fact, isn't there, from Baumgarten, mm-hmm. um, uh, where he almost expresses this idea of a kind of unified unified field theory of existence. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he says, uh, you know, by experiments which extended over twenty years, he Baumgarten obtained a basis of facts upon which it was his ambition to build up a new exact science which should embrace mesmerism spiritualism and all cognate subjects so it's entirely that idea of everything coming together into one as well and there's another um you know i think we also get within this story um some direct references to some explicitly spiritualist concepts as well so this particularly this idea of traveling clairvoyance, which is referenced. And that's the idea that your soul can leave your body and obtain information and and return. And um, it dated right back to the late 18th century to the followers of uh, Franz Mesmer. But one of the people believed to have this power of traveling clairvoyance was Immanuel Swedenborg, who... Conan Doyle, in his History of Spiritualism, cited as, uh, quote, the father of our new knowledge of supernatural matters. And there is this throwaway reference to Swedenborg where uh, it said, several great lights of the spiritualist body had also come a long distance to be present at Baumgarten's experiment, Um, as had Swedenborgian minister, who considered that the proceedings might throw some light upon the doctrines of the rosy cross, which (laughs) is, again, confusing a whole set of other things as well.
1: Yes, this is. I mean, the the, the Rosicrucianism is is it's a, it's a very dense field to try and penetrate. <laughs> um, it's it's linked into uh, Freemasonry, all sorts of um, abstruse ideas, and and this this kind of love, um, particularly amongst probably a certain middle class men of, of of grouping together in secret societies with knowledge <laughs> which only they have yes <laughs> um and there's, there's very much this 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 element coming into this um, that there actually was a, a freemason uh, swedenborgian right mm-hmm. um which i think originated in america in the 1850s and, and that come over to britain in, in the 1870s but was, was never a great success um but i don't know whether whether Doyle had heard of this, and mm. again, Freemasonry, of course, was something else he became interested in in, in Portsmouth, and he joined the Phoenix, uh, the Phoenix Lodge there in uh, January 1887. Mm. Um, so he, he was also involved in 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 that world. It, it's again this this social connection, but also the 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 sort of semi occult aspects of Freemasonry, which will also have, have appealed to him.
0: Yeah. Mm.
1: I mean, it, it's it's interesting as well that you, you say about um, in the quote from Baumgarten the, the 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 twenty year mm. you know, it's taken him twenty years and and this this you can actually see Doyle himself sitting down and thinking this this is going to take me time to to really understand all this st- stuff and you can you can see progression as as he joins various um, various societies or groups and finds his way um, so he, he joins later joins the Society for Psychical Research he even wanders around the fringes of of um of the world of ceremonial magic and and the hermetic mm. order of the golden dawn um which he he didn't actually join um, but uh, but he he's he's you know he's he's on the fringes of it and he's talking to people within that world um and again there's an, another literary element comes in here where we we're, well, we're talking about swedenborgianism um at this time the mid 1880s he's he's working on his his first what would become his first published novel the firm of Girdleston. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the great influences on that is is uh, Sharon novel uncle silas and uncle silas is very steeped in swedenborgianism yeah. as well so and it's very clear um so this is probably also entering into the mix
0: so i think all in all we can be uh, rather suspicious of what conrad says in memories and adventures I think he probably was already quite interested in this topic, and one of the pieces of evidence of that is that, you know, as you've been talking about there, Paul, this is part of Kuhnendorf's evolution of his thinking, which is about trying to reconcile his scientific training with these areas of interest. And you even get another sense of that in another quote from the Great Kindplatz Experiment, where you see that Baumgarten is starting to unpick um, the the training and the um, scientific orthodoxy in which he finds himself there's a reference in there to baumgarten freeing himself from the quote preconceived ideas and the prejudices of his early training gradually however as he proceeded farther and farther along the pathway of original research his mind shook off its old fetters so there's that that whole idea that actually uh, baumgarten has to sort of unlearn what he has learned to be able to move forward in, in his own understanding of, of the world. But th- there's also a
1: sense uh, as well, which, which which Conan Doyle certainly had, of, of the scientific world needs to open its eyes more. And, mm. and, and the old idea of, of what is seen as fringe science, or not even science at all, will in time be proven and become part of the scientific canon.
0: Yeah. So we've talked about the influence of Anstey, we've talked about the influence of uh, spiritualism, but you can go even further back to a 16-year-old Conan Doyle finishing up his studies at Stonyhurst College and going to Feldkirk in Austria. And we've mentioned Felkirk before in episode 9 in a, An Exciting Christmas Eve, where that uh, European location borrowed quite heavily from uh, Conan Doyle's experience at And Kindplight certainly shares a lot of the sort of student hijinks that we see in uh, An Exciting Christmas Eve, and that speaks to Cunador's experiences in the town. Uh, The description of Fritz von Hartmann speaks to this. Um, Cunador writes, uh, "'Never was there a riot or a duel or any other mischief afoot, but the young Rhinelander figured as a ringleader in it. No one used more free and violent language. No one drank more. No one played cards more habitually. No one was more idle.'" But, you know, that isn't really what uh, Conan Doyle was like. And in fact, in Memories and Adventures, um, treat it with the caution that it deserves. He did write of uh, his time in Felkirk. Here the conditions were much more humane, and I met with far more human kindness than at Stonyhurst, with the immediate result that I ceased to be a resentful young rebel and became a pillar of law and order, very much the opposite of Fritz von Hartmann. But it certainly it may have been a much more liberal climb, and uh, that came out in what he was to write at the time. And we actually have a fascinating insight into his time at Felkirk as a result of the work of uh, Marcus Geiser and Helen Dory, who've um, pulled together um, uh, copies of two school newsletters that Conan um, Doyle produced at Felkirk called the Felkirkian Gazette. Uh, and they were um, dated October and November 1875. We don't know if they were circulated. We don't know how widely. Um, we don't know if there are any more copies. But what we do know is um, the contents, because uh, Marcus and Helen have very kindly provided us with a transcript after episode nine on an exciting Christmas Eve, and there are plenty of references in there to strict um, the strict school discipline. There's a character in there appears several times called Pipes, uh, which reminded me somewhat of the villain in um, BBC's Ghost Watch. But there's also an example of plenty of examples of porky humour at the expense of tutors and fellow pupils, and there's a really excellent little poem in there. Um, written by A.D., presumably Arthur Doyle, which combines um, this sort of sense of humour with his love of the Gothic. And it's it's a great poem called A Horrible Tale, which features in the October edition. It goes like this. All in the midst of the busy crowd, I saw an old man stand. He heeded not the bustle loud, a spade was in his hand. Though his hair was white and his form was bowed, yet he dug through the earth and sand. I looked upon his face so pale, for pale as death was he. I said, alas, what fearful tale, what horror here may be, the hidden secret island unveil. I'll solve the mystery. Perhaps, thought I, he buries here some victim he has slain, perhaps a treasure's hidden near, which he expects to gain. Twice I approached the aged seer, and twice drew back again. At last I boldly stepped beside— I saw the old man frown. Why diggest thou so, old man, I cried, for the heart of a noble town? And the mournful voice of the digger replied, I'm a laying a gas pipe down. <laughs> it's a great little comedy uh, uh, poem there as well. But Felkirk is not just the inspiration for, for Kindplatz and, and, and An Exciting Christmas Eve. It also appears uh, as an influence on a few of the other stories um, that Conan Doyle wrote around this time.
1: Yes, uh, as as well as um, the Great Kindplatz experiment, um, there the, uh, there are these these two other stories: uh, the Silver Hatchet uh, and a Pastoral Horror. Um, mm. Both of which we'll, we'll go into at some uh, some future date. But they do all have um, linking themes of 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 insanity and loss of of, of mental and in some degrees bodily control. Mm. Um, and you, you've really got this 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 tying into uh, Conan Doyle's own life, um, with with the the spiral almost into self destruction through alcohol, of his father Charles Altamont Doyle, and you get this particularly in this story uh, when Fritz von Hartmann's soul has entered the body of Professor von Baumgarten, and then decides that he'd like a, a bit of a drink with his pals, <laughs> and goes to the, the the Green Man Pub, um, and causes all sorts of merry riot with, within it. So you have the, this this uh, ostensibly. Um, respectable older professor mm. going mm. into the pub and and creating merry hell amongst all the students um, mm. and um, and kissing the barmaid and um, <laughs> h- hitting the, uh, the 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 innkeeper over the head and all, all this sort of uh, uh, business going on and this this is probably something although it's extremely comic in the story um, in, in the background you wonder if Conan Doyle was thinking of his own father and his yeah what he was getting up to in the pubs in edinburgh uh and the uh, you know the the embarrassing stories that would come back to his mother of of oh what's charles been doing now um yeah. so you've got this the the you you think of charles's appearance um always you know in the photographs with the suit and and, and the beard and looking very respectable mm. um but the alcohol he would then lose control and it's it's very much that seems to be coming out in this story so it's 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 perhaps conan Doyle getting this out of his system a bit uh using humor um to, to disguise it and and it, it it's it, it is a recurrent thing we will be mentioning this uh many times of 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 the the appearances in in various forms of, of charles
0: altamont doyle throughout his son's fiction yes i think timing wise as well it's particularly important isn't it because 1883 mm. two years before this story comes out is when charles altamont doyle is is admitted to um uh, to a sanatorium <clears> for the first time, so um, you know it all feels very timely. But to deflect from the personal aspects of this story, Conan Doyle, you know, d- sets this in no place. Jo- Kleinplatz literally means no place. Um, I think Owen Toled would suggest that it could be a bit of a play on you know Thomas More, in that um, you know d- Thomas More's Utopia also means no place. But in this case, this is sort of um, depersonalizing the location and indeed the, the, what is happening in the story by, by adopting this name of, of, of Kineplatz.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a, a, again, as Owen said, it, it could tie into utopia. And there's also different uses of this sort of thing in, in, in the Victorian literature. Jules Verne and, and Charles Dickens both call characters Nemo, mm-hmm. no one. For, for for that reason, to disguise identity, to escape the world, uh, as, as it were, and that again brings in another aspect of the, this story, where you, you you've got this place, Kainplatz, and the, this. This is the, the the riotous German student world as well of of, of, of popular stories and 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 almost a go in a way almost a fairy tale world and, and mm. you get this in other literature that that, uh, that that Conan Doyle would would have been familiar with the you know, Washington Irving uh, you know has this sort of world in some of his and his stories and and um, the, the, the 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 joint writers ekman Chatrian they mm. they set a yeah. lot of their stories in in this kind of real but not real German world.
0: Yeah, on the fringes again, Mm. yeah. Mm. And talking of names, actually, we should pick up that um, the name Baumgarten is one that we've um, encountered before. It was actually in our last episode when we talked about the Prussian captain in The Lord of Chateau Noir. But there's also a third Baumgarten in the short story The Silver Hatchet, in which a uh, police inspector has that name. So, um, the question has always been, where does Baumgarten come from? And it's, it's long been known that Conan had a German tutor at Stonyhurst called Father Baumgarten. And there's a letter from Conan to his mother in which he says, you know, I'm in the first class in German. I'm getting on very well. We have two hours in the week for German, which is all that could be spared. The father, whose name is Baumgarten, talks to us in German always while teaching us. I like it very much. Um, this was Conan um, Doyle's last year at Stonyhurst. The following year, he would go to to Felkirk, but the interesting thing is we know very little about Father Baumgarten, and um, part of the reason for that we think is that we we may well have tracked down the real person, and his name is not Baumgarten. Um, Cunardor's German tutor at Stonyhurst was actually Baumgartner. Um, the the Jesuit Society have a uh, annual census of Jesuits in England, and it shows that in 1875, there was Father Alexander Baumgartner, uh, a doctor of German literature and a scholar residing at Stonyhurst. Uh, and he's not listed in 1874, he's not listed in 1876, he's only listed in 1875, uh, in that final year of um, uh, Cunendor's studies there. So, who was Baumgartner? Well, he's actually significantly more distinguished than one might think uh, of a simple German tutor. Um, he was born in Switzerland in 1841. His father was Gallus Jacob Baumgartner, who was actually a chief magistrate of St. Gallen, one of the cantons. And Gallus had been um, uh, had been a political liberal, um, but became a supporter of the Catholic Church party. And um, with a sort of um, convert's zeal, he raised his son as uh, as a Jesuit. So Alexander Baumgartner studied in Switzerland before completing his education at Felkirk. Um, And in fact, he graduated with excellent results and joined the Jesuit order in 1860 and then became a member of staff at uh, Felkirk in 1867. But Baumgartner was much more than a German tutor. Uh, He was also a poet and a historian. And he's still known to this day for his writings on the history of world literature So he started a a monumental ten-volume work on the subject in 1897, and he was actually nominated for the Nobel Prize for Literature three times 1901 to three. Um, He didn't win, but you know, and in fact, he he'd only completed the first six volumes uh, before he died in 1910 in Luxembourg. And amazingly, we have a photograph of Alexander Baumgartner because he was featured in the um, Catholic Encyclopedia for 1913, Um, and uh, we'll put a photograph in the show notes. He's not exactly um, a match for the hatchet-faced professor (laughs) described in uh, the Great Kindplatz experiment, but there is perhaps something similar in in part of the description that Conan Doyle um, gives, which is uh, is this, you know, much thought had furrowed his forehead and contracted his heavy eyebrows so that he appeared to wear a perpetual frown, which often misled people as to his character, for though austere, he was tender-hearted. So what's the significance of, of Baumgartner as opposed to Baumgarten in Conan Doyle's story? Well, uh, first of all, he's a direct connection between Stonyhurst and Felkirk, which we haven't really had before. I mean, of course, all the Jesuit colleges were closely connected, but here we have somebody who was actually a tutor at at um, Felkirk uh, attending Stonyhurst and, and could well have been that gateway between the two for, for Conan Doyle. Um, Baumgartner has this love of poetry and of literature, uh, and and interestingly, genuinely of l- world literature. His history of world literature, literature looks at texts from India and Southeast Asia. So you can imagine the kind of conversations that might have been had around the classroom. Uh, and then also Baumgartner was a, a fierce conservative within the Jesuit order, so had no time for liberalism. So there are many ways in which, you know, Baumgartner could indeed be quite significant in the story of um Conan Doyle's life even though we haven't really known of his existence before now
1: yeah it's it's, it's interesting you mentioned the um the aspects as well talking about um India and Southeast Asia uh, and obviously Conan Doyle was was listening to this man um from what you've quoted uh earlier um saying he's, he's delighted that that that, that um, the man he calls Baumgarten in his memoirs is, mm-hmm. is speaking to them in German, you know, he obviously he's left some impact. Um, mm. and again, this, this, um, to come back to the, um, the, 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 the Asian aspects, of course the Jesuits were always very active yeah. in Asia. And, and, uh, perhaps this is where some of, of, of Doyle's interest in, in that part of the world
0: might, might've, have, might've have come. Interesting point. Yeah, mm. absolutely. But the great irony of this podcast I suppose is that we're talking about this in in deadly seriousness when this is a comedy short story. And um and one of the things I really enjoyed reading Kind Plats again was uh, it it is a really good example of the comic short story. And there are some actual laugh out loud moments in here for for something that could be, you know, perceived as being quite lightweight. There's almost a sort of Woodhouseian genius to it particularly in the plotting. And Kunderle really clever in how he actually sets up the story for success as a comedy. One of the things that he does is he he creates high stakes for the two main characters. So Fritz has this inherent animosity towards Baumgarten, which means that he he says, "I'll only take part in this experiment if if you undertake to give me your daughter's hand in marriage." And uh, Baumgarten has high stakes in that the uh, he's invited the finest scientific heads of Europe to come and see his um, his experiment. And once the the swap has been made, you know, those things are both at risk. And I particularly like that moment that you referred to before, Paul, where um, Fritz in the body of the professor is is, um, drinking with his old student buddies. There's the great moment where Fritz says, as Baumgarten, you know, he's about to get married. Married, cried a student, bolder than the others. Is Madame dead then? Madame who? Why Madame von Baumgarten, of course? (laughs) Ha ha, laughed the professor. I can see then that you know all about my former difficulties. No, she is not dead, but I have reason to believe that she will not oppose my marriage. That's very accommodating of her, remarked one of the company. In fact, said the professor, I hope that she will now be induced to aid me in getting a wife. She and I never took to each other very much, but now I hope all that may be ended, and when I marry she will come and stay with me. What a happy family, exclaimed some wag. (laughs) But the great thing about that, apart from it being a funny moment, is the fact that it then sets up that there is an animosity between Fritz and Madame Baumgarten. So when you switch to the other side of the story um, and you have Baumgarten in the body of Fritz returning home, he he goes in in his normal professorial style and starts demanding his dinner. Now, don't stand there like a statue of Juno, but bustle about and get the dinner ready, for I'm well right starved. Um, And uh, this last address, delivered with a perfect shriek of rage, had the effect of sending good Madame Baumgarten flying along the passage and through the kitchen, where she locked herself up in the scullery and went into violent hysterics, which sounds a bit like what you might expect Mrs. Hudson to do at any moment. But it's just so clever, the fact that he's actually managed to set up at these times all these stakes, and then he sets up these little bits of information so that Um, the story unfolds and you you end up with ultimately this comic meeting on the street between the two where they don't recognize each other. (laughs) Baumgarten sees Fritz. At first, his interest was merely excited by the fact of seeing a man so venerable in appearance in such a disgraceful condition. But as he approached nearer, he became convinced that he knew the other well, though he couldn't recall when or where he'd met him. Uh, And then Fritz, for his part, looks at Baumgarten in his own body and says, on a better, hiccup the other <laughs> if those are not the trousers for which my tailor is about to sue me may i never taste beer again <laughs> and it's great it's great stuff it's really it's really good stuff as a comedy uh, while also playing with all of these little things that you know we've touched on which are you know much more serious that sit in the background
1: yes and it it really does show when when he turns his hand to comedy he really does have a, a deft touch um, but it it is also almost like from from the the poem that that, that you quoted from the the Falkirkian Gazette. You know this this mixture of of darkness and light. Yes, uh, is is very much going going on there. And it, it's uh, it, it's interesting to speculate with all the other background um, details that we, we we have been talking about, and and particularly you know, this might be a way of of facing. The 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 demons regarding his father, um, mm. and 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 his behavior, and and you you compare this with, uh, another short story, A Sordid Affair, um, mm-hmm. another one about his his father and and the, the 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 sorry life that his his mother and father lived because of the the alcoholism, and and that's your where he takes pathos, uh, right. and uses that extremely well, but it's, it's he he obviously takes these different approaches and both both work and again it's it's this thing which which shows what a good writer doyle is
0: yeah it really does yeah so what are your uh, concluding thoughts on this on this story then paul well again i, I i'd
1: not read it for a while and, and went back to it and and you know, it really it really did enjoy it and enjoyed it at the level of of, of you know its surface level of the, of the comedy and it as as you've pointed out it does have genuine laugh out loud moments mm. um but it, it is uh, then also interesting for all the other you know the, the 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 other details that are going on and and how this ties into doyle's life and doyle's work and and also how he's he's uh, looking at the the you know the wider literary world and uh, again come back to vice versa Mm. that he's seen this this successful story of Anstey's, and, and almost said to himself Look, I, I can do this better um by turning it into a short story and 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 where he talks about vice versa flagging it might also because it, it's it's a long drawn out joke mm. whereas this one you know that you, you've got the, the brief jokes and it's 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 done and over and it's it, it's that real expertise of concision Yes. Uh, which which made conan doyle a master of the short story um really comes in into this and and uh, and and really uh it really lifts it above uh many of his contemporaries
0: yeah and i i on that point of concision i was pleasantly surprised reading it again at how visual it is in fact how televisual it is mm-hmm. um this a lot of conan doyle's stories i think Read almost like they are you could very easily put them on screen mm-hmm. and and this is one of those ones where I think it works it works really well he, he had he been born a hundred years later, he'd have been writing for television mm-hmm. uh almost certainly, and um you know I think that's probably part of his enduring appeal is that he's instantly accessible. I really enjoyed this story, and for one that I think is generally regarded as a bit of a lightweight, it's got so much more to it.
1: Mm, and, and it's also the, the body swap idea demonstrating the, the whole humour of this. And and the, the, the visual side that you've just been talking about, it, it is interesting that the Vice Versa becomes a play in 1883. Mm. And the, this whole idea of, of, of the body swap, the, the, the visual... Uh, side of it it's still with us today and so it's still very very popular you got uh, in the seventies uh again based on a novel freaky friday yeah um disney film
0: yeah
1: very popular um and in the, in the i think the 1980s you got big with with tom Hanks all playing on the same idea yeah um but because their film's also able to use this visual aspect which as you say Kine Platt's experiment would have translated into a visual format rather well
0: yeah so that brings us to the end of the podcast um and paul what are we doing next
1: time uh next time it's gonna be a rather rather different uh format for the for the uh, for the show uh we'll be talking to uh ross davis uh about the uh conan doyle society and about the recent uh conan doyle awards uh, which were presented at the mysterious bookshop in new york
0: excellent i'm looking forward to talking to ross again so that's it for from us for this time If you want to read the show notes, you can read them at doingsofdoyle.com. And if you'd like to support the podcast, then please consider being a patron. You can find us at Patreon, and the links will be in the show notes. And so until next time, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Goodbye. And this is notable because it was among six stories in these volumes that represent the first appearance of uh, Conan Doyle in book form in England. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just abused at the idea of Conan Doyle appearing in book form, as opposed to Conan Doyle stories appearing in book form. Um, let me do that again.